1: To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest.
2: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest is uh, Sammy Tamimi. He's a consultant uh, focusing on child and adolescent issues. Uh, he's a psychiatrist as well, since 1997. He lives in uh, Lincoln in the United Kingdom, and we're going to talk about uh, his work. So Sammy, thank you for coming.
3: Thank you very much for inviting me.
2: Yeah, tell me just very briefly about the work that you do right now, and then I want to ask you how you got into that.
3: So I'm a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist, which means I'm a doctor by training first and then trained in psychiatry. And then from there, specialized in child and uh, adolescent uh, psychiatry. And I've uh, continued to work in that field in a clinical setting. I've worked in the National Health Service. In the uk all my working life and uh, i've also been involved in various research projects around childhood and uh, mental health and cross-cultural issues quite a variety of things and i've also um, been reasonably active in terms of um, writing writing papers journal articles I've been involved in um, 12 books now that I've either authored or co-authored or um, edited. And uh, I also appear quite regularly in um, national and international conferences. And I do a fair amount of teaching and training.
2: Well, excellent. What what got you involved or interested in working with adolescents in the first place?
3: Well, I started my um, training in uh, psychiatry after finishing medicine and doing the um, basic medical Training that you have to do before you get registered. And I became interested in psychotherapeutic approaches because um, initially working in uh, general psychiatry on psychiatric wards, uh, I could see that um, a lot of the time they felt like more custodial places for people who were either at risk of harming themselves or harming others. They d- didn't seem terribly therapeutic environments to me. So I, I kind of felt frustrated by the therapeutic possibilities in terms of the kind of more narrowly medicalized approach to um, helping people in distress. And then in the uh, early 90s, I did a placement in child and adolescent psychiatry. And in those days, uh, at least in, in the UK, child and adolescent psychiatry departments, were mainly influenced by systemic thinking. So there was uh, a lot of work with an understanding that children and young people and their problems and issues are connected to their history, the things that have happened to them, but also their broader environment from what's going on with their parents to the schools, to the peer groups, and even to the cultural ideas that are floating around more generally. So that hmm. environment really appealed to me because it gave an opportunity to start learning different ideas, different ways of thinking about presentations. And I found the work with um, not just the young person, but their family and sometimes the broader system. It just made a lot of sense to me. And, and so it kind of drew me into that field of psychiatry.
2: When dealing with, uh, with underage people, How do they group them by age? And do you think the age groupings make sense? Or does psychiatry just look at below 18 all the same?
3: That's an interesting question, because it kind of brings to mind ideas about what we think about in terms of development and how people develop. Because ultimately, when we draw up these boundaries, these are artificial boundaries that we've um, imposed And it's kind of interesting question in another way, because one of the things I've become very interested in uh, over the years is trying to have a broader understanding of the cultural ideas and the cultural stories we tell. So one of the things that's, I think, very present in modern Western cultures is an idea of a timetable to which children and young people are expected to develop. So not just that we have things by, um, year group ages in school, but we also have these timetables that parents get very worried about if they see their child hasn't, you know, said the first word by a certain age or isn't crawling by a certain age or hasn't mastered certain aspects of, of what is thought to be necessary social skills and, and so on. So we've got, we do have a culture that thinks and tells a story, if you like, about how people develop, how children and young people develop that's very mechanised and sometimes gives very little room for the variety of the ways in which children develop and become adults and find their own voice. And how we also have a kind of set of cultural stories that we also tell about families and about the idea of when young people should be considered as adults. So there's the whole thing about when legally they are considered as adults and what they're considered to be able to do at what ages. And we can see across the globe, there are different countries have different legal rules about a young person is entitled to do or is able to do at what age.
2: Quick question Do you, do you see any dislocations? Meaning someone is, I'm just making this up, you know, when someone's 16 in the UK, They can do X, Y, Z, but not A, B, C. But their problems at those ages tend to maybe stem from this inability to do certain things or stem from the sudden licensing or ability to do things because of their age. Like, are there any of these dislocations where age and law don't work well together?
3: I think there is the other bit that I was just about to say is in terms of our ideas about um, how dependent and independent we expect ourselves to be so we have certain ideas about how independent children should be by a certain age and in western culture we have what is thought of as a more individualistic orientated culture so there is a constant push towards a sense of autonomy for young people and there is a, a kind of suspicion about young people who continue to or find it hard to be outside of the fold of the family. So uh, I was saying, but in, in other cultures that are more collectivist, we don't see that same push for young people to become independent, to become autonomous. In fact, there's often uh, an expectation that people will stay very connected to their family.
1: Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, the ability to request specific topics or guests and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show.
3: And we'll continue to need that support and connection from their family as they, as they grow up. So to, this is a long way of coming back to your question about a sense of, if you like, for some young people, they can experience a conflict between, as they go through adolescence, between their desire to remain pendant and remain like a child who needs to be looked after because those needs don't go away and what they imagine they should be capable of doing. And so this idea that they should be able to demonstrate their independence and their autonomy. And for some young people that can feel like a a kind of exciting and liberating thing, but then that draws them into trouble sometimes because developmentally, they may not be quite ready to to be out on their own doing uh, their own thing. And, you know, a lot of adolescents think they know everything and um, their parents don't know anything, but then they realize that they get drawn into trouble very easily. But for some others, it can be the opposite is the issue. They find that independence actually overwhelming and they want to draw back um, uh, into the family and find the outside world Uh, a particularly challenging place. So you do have to take into account the circumstances of of different young people and what's going on in their life and what's going on in their family and more broadly.
2: But what are some of the the common issues that tend to occur at this, this age of liberation? I mean, what age does it fall in the UK? Like in the US, one watermark is 16 when you get your driver's license in a lot of states and then 18 when you get more rights and then 21. But what does it look like in the UK and what are the associated issues or missteps that people make?
3: So in the UK, the main legal marks are 16 and 18. And particularly when it comes to treatment and issues like that there is a much more flexible thing in the law in terms of there is an idea that uh, if the young person is assessed to have the capacity to make their own decisions they can make their own decisions they can consent to their treatments even if their parents uh, don't consent to it so for example with contraceptives in terms of the the types of challenges i, I think one of the things that has um Become more of a preoccupation for me in my clinical practice, but also in my writing and research in recent years, has been trying to understand more what are the assumptions behind the models that we use to try and interpret and understand the experiences that uh, adolescents are having, or children and young people growing up, but particularly adolescents, because adolescence is a time where. There is lots of biological changes taking place, but simultaneously there are a lot of new psychological challenges uh, taking place. You start to feel things more intensely. You start to have a sexual awakening. You start to get into more intense relationships, but you also start to think about the world in a much deeper way than maybe you have before and start asking deeper questions like, you know what, what why do i exist what's the meaning of my life what's my purpose is there something bigger than me in this world who finds me interesting what is it that i'm interested in what's my future going to be you know all of these bigger existential questions come into play if you like this
0: podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes
3: And one of the things that uh, I've become increasingly alarmed about in our professional culture, um, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I've become quite critical of many of the ideas that we've been popularizing that come from a psychiatric perspective. Because I feel that what we have been doing is by increasing the amount of media coverage of an idea that many young people experience mental health problems. And most recently, certainly in the UK, I suspect it would be similar in the US, that this idea that COVID and the lockdowns has brought about a mental health pandemic alongside the, you know, infectious pandemic.
2: Yeah, t- tell uh, me about that a bit. What, what, have you observed from your patients due to you know, the lockdowns and all that other stuff.
3: So what, what I was, what I was going to carry on to say was that there is this idea that uh, the lockdowns has increased the likelihood of people experiencing mental health disorders and therefore that we need to be much more on the lookout uh, for diagnosing them and treating them. But the issue I have with that and our general way of thinking about distress in young people who are growing up is that when we turn what I would term ordinary and or understandable distress into an idea that it points towards something going wrong within the individual that is uh, diagnosable in medical terms and treatable with you know, that we use medical labels and then we use medicalized treatments, whether these are using medication or using psychotherapeutic approaches, is that by accident, I think, in itself has become a cause of an increased rate of distress and alienation from that distress in young people. So, for example, just to help you understand what I mean by that, It is a perfectly understandable experience for a young person who has been told that they have to stay at home, can't meet up with their friends that they they're used to hanging out with. School is all online and they're kind of 24 hours a day just at home. It would be highly surprising if a large percentage of those didn't feel unhappy, distressed, frustrated. Yeah. That's that would be a very understandable reaction. Lonely. It's
2: like uh, yeah. it's like being being grounded by yeah. the government and there's no end. It, to it.
3: it is. It is. You know, and not knowing when this will end or what's going to happen next, or so people were reacting in very understandable ways. Yeah, you can understand that. These are part of the ways we are built as human beings. We are going to find situations like that quite distressing. Now, if you keep it in that framework of an ordinary and or understandable response to the circumstances that are happening in your life. The types of interventions that might be helpful are going to be much more to do with supportive interventions and to do with, you know, helping them get their life back on track, reconnect with their social world and, you know, get their material life Up and running again as we come out of lockdown. Do you follow me? So, in in the realm of something that's kind of understandable to everyone. However, if you label those experiences as being the sign of a disorder, let's call it depression, which is a very common one diagnosed in young people these days, or anxiety. So, if we start calling those experiences that you are now suffering from a clinical condition. That it starts to the young people and their families and their teachers and whoever else is around will start to interpret what's going on as there's something gone wrong now as a result of what's happened, but something has gone wrong now in that young person. And that this thing that has gone wrong is beyond my expertise or beyond my ability as a parent or a teacher or a young person themselves. To know how to deal with, we now need a professionalized response to that.
2: Yeah, that's like what's happening with ADHD. But in this, exactly. was, this is a man made, it's a natural response. But yet now exactly. it appears that they're medicalizing and labeling this and turning it into something completely different. And what will that do psychologically to these adolescents and their families? Like, what does that do besides, hey, you know, a different perspective? It's understandable. Now it's time to get back out there and do your thing. I mean. So, what yeah. do these two approaches tell you? How do they affect the patients differently?
3: So, I mean, yeah, you've got you've got it. So, I've come to realize because I've been following the research, you know, the scientific literature. My interest in um, trying to understand the basis for the conditions we are meant to be diagnosing started out with actually ADHD. That was the first one that I became interested in, and then it's um, you know, gradually grown from there. And one of the things that I realized uh, when I started delving into the uh, literature on ADHD is just trying to get a handle on what do we mean? You know, what is it that's fundamentally or characteristically different about these children that means that they can be labeled with a condition that is thought to be something to do with their brain development? So the more I looked into this, the more I realized that this was just an idea. Every time people have looked in depth and have had a finding and said, oh, yeah, we found a bit of the brain that looks uh, a bit smaller on this group of kids from another, another research team looks at the same area and, and doesn't find it. So you have this problem of what's known as the replicability crisis. Nobody has been able to come up with any genetic scans or any brain scans or anything really that distinguishes children who would get a diagnosis of ADHD compared to children who don't. So, it's an entirely man-made concept. So what's happening is it's, there's a concept. And that concept, I think, I increasingly believe is related to our cultural beliefs, so we have a cultural idea about how children should be, and if you yeah, if I've, you go I've back... heard
2: of um, tons of people saying, "Oh, I have ADHD. Oh, I'm so ADHD," and I could see this happening with the COVID stuff. Like, "Oh, I'm I'm in COVID yes. withdrawal," or "I'm in society." Whatever they decide to label this stuff, I guess people can identify with that and say, "I have this. I have that."
3: So I liken it now to reading your horoscope. You know, your astrology chart. Do you i don't know if you have that in in the US but in the UK yeah. you can get a paper and they get give you your star signs and and tell you you know this is yeah, something it. something interesting is going to happen you're going to meet somebody who will tell you something that will change you know that kind of that you can read into it so if you look at for example if you look at an adult ADHD screening questionnaire and you're feeling a little fragile yourself you'll identify with it it's so non-specific it talks about things that are so generalized that it's hard not to and of course these then so the way i think about these diagnoses I, i've understood now that they are actually not diagnoses they're not diagnoses in the medical sense because diagnosis in the medical sense provides an explanation for your your symptoms that's a system of categorization that's based on explanation so if you have a chest pain you go to the doctor, and they tell you actually your chest pain is because of X, Y, and Z. You know, it's because y- you've had acid reflux and you can breathe a sigh of relief. It's not to do with your heart, or because the, you've got a chest infection, or whatever it is. You know, they, they will do some investigations because you need to understand the cause of the chest pain. The chest pain is not a diagnosis, it's a symptom. You follow me? When it comes to something like ADHD, you're essentially saying that the cause of having poor attention and hyperactivity is the fact that you've got poor attention and hyperactivity. You're saying that the symptom, if you like, causes itself. This is an oxymoron. This is a philosophical circular thinking. It's a bit like going to the doctor and saying, doctor, I've got a headache or or, I've got a pain in my head. And the doctor says, well, the cause of the pain in your head is a headache. Low mood is a description. And to say that your low mood is caused by depression is just the same thing. It's a circular thing. You're just describing something. So a description cannot cause itself. Are you following me? Right, that makes right? sense. I see. So in psychiatry, what we call diagnosis are actually so not
2: diagnoses; they're it,
3: descriptions. So. They're just descriptions. But in fact, what they've become in everyday life and in everyday social life is they have become brands. They have become consumer brands. So a market grows up, or, you know, in a consumer market culture, what we get is is a system of branding. And then around that brand, a market grows up with lots of products. You know, you have Apple and then Apple starts to make computers and then it makes phones and then it makes iPads and then it makes funny watches and then it makes all various software, et cetera, et cetera and you have something similar you have there's meant to be hundreds of psychiatric diagnoses but we only know of a few of them because some of them are very amenable to the branding process because there is lots of money to make in a market economy so, so you take something like ADHD it's not just the fact that drug companies are going to make lots of money by branding their products as treatments for ADHD but also professionals, uh, researchers, people are going to write books, they're going to develop courses, they're going to develop specific therapies, there's going to be aids, there's going to be school things, you're going to get a whole load of products developing around the popular brands. So we find a few psychiatric diagnoses are all over the place, because they capture something that is of common cultural concern. And so what you find is that there are, when it comes to younger children, the popular brands are those related to uh, childhood behaviors, which is something that, of course, a lot of parents and teachers are concerned about. And they tend to be mainly aimed at boys. Boys is the main market. So ADHD and autism are big players, big brands in that market they capture something of that type of anxiety that people are looking for some sort of solution for
2: quick question here is there is there a name for the psychological phenomenon or phenomenon of identifying something labeling it and then this whole world of stuff grows up around it just as you're describing advertising books media conferences is there there a name for that
3: so i've called this and i've written about this i've called this the mcdonaldization of children's mental health, of mental health in general, actually. But uh, I've particularly written about the McDonaldization of children's mental health. That's the process that um, that's, if you like, the, the label that I've used for that process. So as you go into into uh, adolescence and then into adulthood, the, the main customer market becomes women. Women are the main, and particularly the types of pressures that are, are on many women to try and hold together a family, hold together relationships as, at the same time as trying to keep a career going. So uh, what you find is that um, things like depression, bipolar disorder, and increasingly, at least in this country, borderline personality disorder, and more recently ADHD and autism have migrated into the adult world as brands and seem to follow the same pattern. So whilst ADHD as a brand is more common for boys when they're younger, as a brand for adult ADHD, it's much more common that the consumer is a woman rather than a man. So we see that that same pattern because these are the groups that are most vulnerable to being out there looking for something because things in their life feel so difficult
2: so how can i mean once something like adhd becomes such a brand as you call it and it big mcdonaldized what pushback can there be or is it too late it's just become such a big self-sustaining monster that there's nothing that can be done
3: well one of the things that um uh, i understood uh, from a clinical point of view is I began to realize um, some years ago that I was seeing an increasing number of people who had, this is young people, um, mainly uh, adolescents and um, adolescents in their later adolescence, who were very, feeling very stuck. And they'd often had um, involvement with services for quite a time. They may have been on medication. They may have had diagnoses. They've often had several interventions, including psychotherapy interventions, but they um, they' just can't don't seem to be able to step out of whatever they felt in the grip of. And one of the things that I began to understand is the thing that they felt in the grip of was actually a unfortunate and accidental product of the systems that we have created. So once people start to imagine that what I call your ordinary or understandable emotional experiences including deeply unpleasant ones and a lot of the time these are people who have had a lot of unpleasant things happening in their life so it's understandable that they feel you know the way we're built as human beings if bad things happen to us we feel bad you know but that's not a sign of a of a disease and what had had happened to a lot of these young people is that couldn't get away from interpreting their experiences as being a sign of something wrong with them. So they spent a lot of their emotional energy trying to control their feelings or trying to suppress their feelings. This is what I call meta-emotion. How we feel about how we feel becomes an issue. One way of understanding that is, I'm sure you've experienced insomnia. Most people have. So, after a few nights, you know usually insomnia starts because you've got things on your mind, you're upset, you're distressed, or something that you need to sort out. But if you keep having you know poor sleep night after night, then after a while, it's poor sleep itself that becomes the cause of that poor sleep. so at some point, insomnia causes itself because you start lying awake, worrying about whether you're going to get to sleep. And you know, and then you worry about how much, how many more hours sleep will I be able to get before I have to wake up, or if I have to go to work. And yeah, does that sound familiar? Yep. That
2: process perpetuates. As asthma yeah, is it's it's self- like that too. You feel like yeah, your lungs may be a little bit heavy. So then you take the puff, and then you feel better. And it's a very psychological
3: thing too. Exactly. So there's a lot of things that you know we can easily get caught in. A cycle, and the thing for a lot of these people is what I realized is if you take that insomnia metaphor further, or analogy rather further, and you start um, trying to, you know, fix the insomnia, get rid of it, um, so you can get some sleep, and you find an app or something like that, and it works for a little while, then the insomnia comes back again, and maybe eventually you go to your doctor, you get some pills from them, and you know that works for a little while, but then it comes back each time. Either a remedy doesn't work or it works for a while and it comes back again. Each time that happens, it makes you more hopeless and feeling more in the grip of this thing and feeling like whatever you do, you can't get rid of it. Do you follow me? However, so by accident, actually, more treatment caused a problem that was essentially a short term problem to become a long term problem. If you replace The word insomnia with the word depression or the word anxiety, you will start to see how this process works. And what I realized is from a clinical point of view that the thing that I try to help people now is not to think about their depression or their anxiety as anything other than ordinary and understandable reactions. And in in effect, to stop trying to get rid of them. It's more about learning to accept them into your life
2: what happens psychologically when I've, I've noticed this i don't know if i can describe it right but when someone gets a diagnosis they either feel relief that they think now i have the they answer do. or they feel trepidation like oh shit now i've been diagnosed with this and their mind starts to say i am diabetic i am this i am that but what have you seen psychologically happens and is, is there anything good that comes of this or is it usually bad like what What are the two sides
3: of the point you see? It's a very powerful process. I mean, sociologists have known about the power of labelling, you know, from studies going back to the 50s and 60s, whether it was to do with um, labelling based on social class, based on race, based on all sorts of uh, identifying features. So we've known about the power of labels and how they affect our interpretation both of ourselves and how other and and affects other people's uh, interpretations of us. And that has effects, of course, across medicine, but particularly when it comes to psychiatry, because the labels we are we are putting on people don't correspond to anything that we can measure in any physical way. So at least with diabetes, you've got a concrete measure to understand the impact of your treatments. Whereas for us in psychiatry, all our treatments are really based on a subjective idea. So what I think has been, if you look a lot at the evidence in terms of what's happened at a population level, is that as we've expanded our mental health treatments available in society, in terms of both um, pharmacological treatments, as well as psychotherapeutic treatments, but particularly pharmacological treatments, we seem to, rather than have reduced the number of people who are experiencing long-term uh, mental health problems, as you should expect if our treatments were effective, we seem to have become particularly good at creating long-term patients. So we've got an increasing number of people who are now being identified as having long-term mental health problems. Uh, And for many, that includes quite disabling long-term mental health problems. So somewhere along the way, we've got things badly wrong. And uh, um, even though, of course, the intentions have always been to try and help people, um, I guess, apart from the pharmaceutical industry, whose, whose intention, like any company, is to make profit so even though our intentions might have been good it seems that the systems we have created uh, rather than being good at helping people see their distress in the context of their lives and in the context of what it means to be a human being you know the idea that we can be human without learning how to tolerate and be with and survive our distress Instead of our services helping people with putting that interpretation onto their experiences and supporting them through that, we seem to have been good at by accident convincing people that they have concrete problems that are beyond their ability to manage and that require these special interventions. And that appears to have created a a whole new set of people who are now identified as having some sort of long-term mental health problem. I often think that this generation of young people are the most are the most pathologized young people in history really because we've never had this number of young people who we are identifying as having some sort of mental health problem. There, there was a survey done uh, a couple of years ago in the UK asking Young people, if they um, believed that they have or have had a mental health problem, and 68% of this survey of 1,000 young people said they believed they had or have had a mental health problem, and out of those, three quarters said that they had understood they had because of mental health awareness campaigns. So, you know, this is this is the cost of us talking to young people in these kind of medicalized ways rather than helping them understand their experiences as part of what it means to be human. Well,
2: what about the propensity of these conditions, again, once labelled to seem to be lifetime conditions? So not only do you identify with it, but if you've, quote-unquote, had this condition for years and you know, decades, like, it becomes you, and, you know, they get to medicate you for life, and you get to become this new thing for life. It seems like that's also where this is going as well it's not just a temporary thing like oh i have this probably i broke my leg it'll heal and i'm not a, i'm not a broken leg like i don't have broken legism but if i'm labeled as being depressed or anxious or adhd whatever it's for life it seems like.
3: that's exactly what i'm saying that's exactly what happens when we when we start to imagine that suffering is something that should not exist in our lives and should be something that we are able to control and suppress instead of learning to live with and learning to you know and that's the the cost of of that way of thinking is that actually we are creating lots of people now who unnecessarily are identifying as having some sort of long-term mental health problem. And it doesn't have to be that way. If you look at some uh, other cultures, so for example, in in the Eastern religions, such as uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, the um, human suffering is not only seen as something that's inevitable, but it's actually seen as something desirable. In other words, that for growth to happen people have to experience and understand and be able to stay with suffering that's how personal growth happens in uh, religions such as uh, buddhism so you know that's a very different framework within which to view suffering and probably a, a more helpful one for for us as humans
2: do you see yourself in any way as I don't know, is this process so huge that can you intervene in it or you just feel relegated to just helping your patients as best you can and not letting them fall into this, like, I am this this diagnosis for the rest of my life. Like, what do you feel like your role is and how can you help?
3: So I... I kind of vary between being optimistic and pessimistic on these bigger questions. Obviously, in my day-to-day work, I'm focused on doing what I can to try and help the young people who come under my care and under my team's care so that we can hopefully help them have a less pathologized view of their experiences. But on the broader question, there is a, a large amount of critique going on. And there are quite a few different organisations, including service user organisations and professionals, including quite a lot of psychiatrists. I'm part of something called the Critical Psychiatry Network, for example, which um, you know is a group of mainly UK-based um, psychiatrists who have uh, various critical perspectives, and and we are we're quite an active group. You know, we've we've published a lot, and and we tend to. Get involved with um, issues to do with our Royal College, which is our organization that, um, you know, you have to be a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists in order to practice as a psychiatrist in in the UK. But there are other groups there. There's a very active group in the British Psychological Society who have written some very useful stuff. And there are various campaigning groups. So another group that I'm part of is the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, um, because a lot of the drugs that we prescribe in psychiatry cause dependence and are very difficult to come off without help. So quite often people confuse withdrawal symptoms with an idea that they're you know, that their original condition has come back again. So this is, this is a group that has recently influenced legislation in the UK. So we had a report from a parliamentary working group that has now recognized things like antidepressants which weren't recognized up until recently as drugs of dependence. And so new guidelines have been going out to doctors in the UK. How far that will get, I don't know, but at least it's it's getting out there. So there are a number of groups around. Um, so it does feel like there is an increasing groundswell and i often think that um you know the old saying that you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time but you can't fool all the people all the time has some relevance uh, and and i feel that because of the the whole big black hole of science that the 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 structures that we're using and the systems of diagnosis that we have are so lacking a basis in science that sooner or later this this will have to this will have to implode and we don't know when that will happen and how quickly that will happen but we know from history sometimes things that are waiting to happen when there's enough of a critical mass can happen very quickly i mean who would have saw the fall of the berlin wall and then within a couple of years the soviet union was no more i mean that happened very quickly but obviously there had been years leading up to that it's just that you don't know when that critical mass will be reached that um that a system that has that is really has very little solid basis can crumble so we shall wait and see
2: but what does that mean crumble it's like you know adhd or is, do you think it's going to be a whole i mean the whole medical system will somehow have to radically change or do you think condition by condition that's where we're going to see change and well, how i
3: think i think it will be the whole way of Thinking about what we call psychiatric diagnosis having to um, disappear, because I think there will eventually be a wider recognition that what we're calling diagnoses uh, are not diagnoses and doesn't have a scientific basis propping it up so uh, that's that's by hope, and then we will be able to get into a much more humane system of mental health care
2: any inkling as to what that would look like maybe just one or two features of it i gotta know if you're in your imaginings besides saying well this isn't working what, what do you estimate would work? Like, what would a healthier system look like?
3: We do have a number of reasonably well-developed models around. So I'll just give you a, an idea of a few of them. So of a model that appears to work extremely well, including with um, psychotic people, people who are much more at the severe end, is something called Open Dialogue. It's based on a kind of narrative therapy approach. It was developed in Scandinavia and involves bringing a network of people around the person and creating a safe space where different voices and different ideas can be understood, accepted, and viewing people's experiences as meaningful. And the task of the bringing the therapeutic team, if you like, together, which is made up of professionals, but also the people, the significant people in that person's life, is uh, to help make sense of the situation. So that's one model that's had a a lot of success. There's another model that's developed called the Power Threat Meaning Framework, which is based on a trauma-informed care, which is about understanding um, how power has operated in somebody's life and um, looking at how you make a meaningful story that also includes an understanding of that person's strengths and resilience and how you might help them build on their existing strengths and again connecting with um, the network around them. There are approaches that were developed in Italy around developing community care and involving the local community so that's a much more activity based involves developing social enterprises and getting people involved in in a kind of working together with professionals and other service users doing things running running small businesses running uh, various things alongside a kind of therapeutic uh, approach so this sense of doing something purposeful rather than just sitting. So, there are a number of models out there. And and the the, the final one I wanted to mention is something called feedback-informed treatment, which has also been gathering momentum. And this is simply the idea of co-constructing your therapeutic model. So, instead of having a model that you impose passively on the patient, you, you get feedback about what's working and what's not at the end of most sessions and you adjust what you're doing depending on that feedback. So the therapeutic process is jointly built up between the professional and, and the person. So those are a few examples. So we, we do have, we do have well systematized and well developed alternatives
2: that. Well, very good. So Sammy, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go?
3: I'm an author on the Mad in America website, and that's a really good website for lots of resources uh, from lots of different people who've been writing blogs, uh, reviewing research, writing original research. So if you just look up my name, I I decided to serialize my latest book, which is called Insane Medicine, uh, on that website. I do have my own website, which I'm fortunately, because I'm a bit busy, I, I, I don't often um, update it. But you can also go and see links to a few more of my books and articles. So that's uh, uk.
2: Well, very good, Sammy. Thank you so much for coming. I love your unique perspective. So appreciate you being here. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for inviting me. If you like this podcast,
0: please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.